and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Before we get started, just a reminder to sign up for my newsletter if you haven't already at jasonpereira.ca. On to today's show. Today, I have Leisha Davis, startup investor and advisor. Leisha has experience at just about every seat at the table when it comes to the FinTech space. Everything from startup founder to the head of innovation at Vanguard to now being an investor and advisor. And with that, here's my interview with Leisha. Hello, Leisha. Hello, Jason. Thank you for taking the time today. My pleasure. So Alicia Davis, startup investor and advisor, tell us about what it is you do. Sure. So um, very simply put, I am interested in identifying the most interesting startups to invest in early stage across a variety of verticals, primarily consumer, enterprise SaaS, and within the fintech space. Okay. And let's talk about your history. You you had, uh, before you got here, you had some very interesting positions. Let's talk about what that looked like. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I've sat at this point, almost at every seat of the table with respects to fintech and innovation. I was a founder and entrepreneur myself, turned corporate entrepreneur, most recently serving as the founder and CEO of Vanguard's Innovation Studio in Philadelphia, and also as an angel investor and venture partner with both 37 Angels and VE Venture Partners. So I think uh, (laughs) solving problems, running into ambiguity, and identifying uh, interesting solutions, teams, startups is kind of really what I love to do. So quite literally, you've sat at every seat table (laughs) when it comes to the entire ecosystem. It's a unique viewpoint you bring to the table. So that's fantastic. So um, I want to spend some time talking about the previous positions because there's a couple of interesting things about specifically the Vanguard position and also about what you're currently doing right now. So we'll start off by, by talking about the head of innovation for Vanguard and their innovation studio. So they're an interesting company. Unlike a lot of stodgier, older line businesses in fit in finance, they've always been kind of a disruptor. And you got to be kind of the, the disruptor's head within that organization. <laughs> so what was it like being a change agent within an organization of that size? Sure. I mean, very simply put, it was incredibly challenging interesting and rewarding. And I think the story of Vanguard is probably one that many organizations of its trajectory has experienced, right? The once upon a time challenger that disrupted a industry, in this instance, Vanguard with its at-cost model, kind of cutting out the middleman and taking a stand for the everyday investor, really changed the, the game for asset managers, mutual fund companies 45 plus years ago. With a lot of success and growth, also comes size, operations, policies, procedures, and all of the trappings of what good companies rely on to make their ship uh, work run, so to speak. And so I think for Vanguard, you know, for all intents and purposes, I like to think of it as a 47-year-old successful startup that is looking to continuously challenge and reinvent itself so that it doesn't become the incumbent that gets disrupted by the next Vanguards of the world. Yeah, you don't want to be kind of be displaced by the innovator's dilemma. And it's interesting you mentioned that because it's, you know, reading anyone's read the Steve Jobs biography knows that one of the things he obsessed about later on in life was preventing Apple from ever succumbing to that. And inevitably, he came to the conclusion that it's entrenched bureaucracies end up just kind of quashing development of these innovators. And it makes sense, right? You've established all this bureaucracy to serve the beast. And then you have someone like you who comes in who tries to get people to change, right? And even in companies that are known for changing things, they're still full of humans who are not fond of change. Sure. Yeah, sure. And and I do want to introduce the notion that it's not that one is right and one is wrong or one's good and one's bad. 
it's actually very different approaches to solving very different needs. So if there's nothing to begin with, this is a from scratch, and I have the luxury of being a founder to build something from the ground up, of course, I'm going to want to move much more quickly because I have less risk. I don't have assets and brand and reputation and clients at stake, right? But large organizations that do and have successful thriving businesses, the reason why they create all of this infrastructure and operationalization is to make sure that those things are running smoothly and there's a risk mitigation bent. And so I would say, it, just like most things, the right tool, the right approach, the right methodology needs to match the uh, the right goals and objectives. So, I mean, let's let's discuss your the obstacles that you basically came up against versus how you would handle those. I mean, typically you're the common ones, right? They don't want, companies don't want to disrupt their existing margins or their existing lines of business. People don't necessarily want to potentially set the stage for something that's going to destroy their power base within a company. So what were the typical, besides those, what were the typical obstacles you found when trying to propose change within that organization? Sure. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, this is a pretty deep conversation that has lots of different Different tentacles, but maybe just for the sake of simplicity, we'll talk about it. Keep a top line. <laughs> yeah. So one thing that's really challenging is the talent strategy, mm-hmm. right? So large organizations, uh, especially ones who focus a lot on talent development and have a rotational culture, again, the majority of the roles are in established operations. Mm-hmm. And so the type of people who tend to do well in those type of environments are very good at project managing, meeting deadlines, structuring, relationship management is very good, kind of outlining things that can be very clearly followed, delegated, executed upon. But when you think about the innovation space, look, much of it is undefined, right? You have to have a plan, <laughs> you have to have a planning mindset, but there is no fixed plan that you're going to execute flawlessly to get to a predetermined outcome right? Because there's lots of pivots, there's lots of testing and learning, there's lots of new things that are going to pop up all the time. So I would say the founder skill set versus the operator skill set is very different. Again, both are valuable for different needs. And I would say one of the things that was most challenging is hiring, training, and supporting, coaching, developing the type of individual that would thrive in a incubator innovation environment versus a run state established operation is one. And that inevitably has to have its own challenges, right? You have to have both parties across the table on various different initiatives. And we're talking very, very different you know, personality types altogether. So basically the, the people strategy was definitely a concern. How did you mitigate that? How did you basically not only bring people in, but get both sides or both types of personalities working together in the right direction? Sure. Well, I mean, uh, there's, there's a saying in innovation that uh, we value diversity of the crowd, uh-huh. right? So we actually want people who think differently, have different backgrounds and experiences. So I knew from the beginning that, look, staffing the innovation studio, you couldn't just hire brand new outside people who maybe were ex-founders and entrepreneurs, product people who knew how to work in this way, completely just have a staff like that because they wouldn't know how to navigate the organization. Uh, They wouldn't necessarily have domain expertise or the right organizational context. And you couldn't just bring people from mothership directly over because again, they're not accustomed to working in this way. Mindset, skill set would be a completely different beast. And so likely there was going to need to be a blend of these types of folks. So what we sought out to do was 
we reflected on our own experiences. So again, I was a founder. I led innovation at the business line level at Vanguard for years before stepping into the leadership role at the enterprise level. And so reflecting on those experiences, as well as going on a learning tour of startups, incubators and accelerators, venture capitalists, other successful corporate innovation efforts, and synthesizing down what we thought was going to be the right makeup role and profile of the types of people that we needed for, for the studio. And so once we had that crafted, we went about a pretty extensive process of identifying and hiring that talent. Just to give you some sense of math, I probably looked at close to 2,300 applicants to hire the uh, 50 that we ended up with. And we largely ended up with a 70-30 mix. 70% 30, 70 of the people came from the outside, a variety of backgrounds, some from corporate innovation and venture, others were founders and others were not, and they were product or functional or tech people. And then the 30% were folks from Vanguard who were whip smart, very engaged and hardworking, but were looking for something different and new and had a track record of working differently than everybody else. So this blend really worked out well for us. It's not a formula by all means, each organization's culture is different. But for us, what we found was blending talent as a combo of internal, external. We also introduced custom onboarding where for three weeks before they got staffed up on a venture, on a team, it was immersive learning, experiential learning across tools of the trade for startup work. So design thinking, lean and agile, communication techniques, lots of different things before we staffed them up. And then once they were on an engagement, there was embedded coaching both internally and externally throughout the entire venture development process. So very much the adult learning model of no see, do. So teach them, uh -huh. let them see it in practice, and then allow them to practice for themselves with hands-on coaching. So can you talk to me about the types of projects and categories uh, or things you were trying to improve at Vanguard and what you were working on there? Yeah, sure. So at Vanguard, we took a diversified approach to our innovation portfolio, much like how we do for our investment portfolio. That's so your best effort, at right? Yes, exactly. If you guys are familiar with the Horizons Framework for Innovation, which is just a methodology for thinking about the different types of innovation that can take place within an organization, your Horizon Ones or your core innovation is largely about making your existing businesses better, faster, cheaper. Things like uh, redesigning the client experience, taking things digital, fixing broken windows, taking out waste, becoming more efficient, those types of projects. And at Vanguard, uh, the business units themselves own the Horizon 1s. So that was not stuff that the innovation mm -hmm. studio wanted. Your Horizon 2s, that gets into your adjacent expansionary, some of the growth-oriented projects. That's thinking about your core, but expanding into adjacent products, services, markets, and spaces. There, we also had dedicated teams, special initiative teams working on that. So largely, that was not the responsibility of the innovation studio either, although we did collaborate on a handful of projects like that. The types of things that we worked on were much more firmly planted in the Horizon 3 space, which is stuff that has the potential to disrupt the not just the company, but potentially the industry, or create new categories altogether, oftentimes leveraging nascent technologies or involving the creation of a new business model. So that's the type of stuff that we worked on, identifying white spaces that could potentially matter five, 10 plus years out. So um, broad stroke speaking in terms of the types of problem statements or opportunity spaces we were interested in, I'll just speak kind of high level meta. 
we were really interested in kind of the role of money, right? And what was the future of the role of money in our economy, in people's lives? You look at countries across the globe who have become cashless economies. Uh, take Asia, for example. The last time I was in China, very honestly, for three days, I could not spend cash. I wanted to. Everything was, yes. right? This was years ago. So you look at phenomenon like that and kind of the role of money and cash and how it moves across the economy really is starting to change. So are there things that we can learn here and experiments that we can conduct to um, play with different treatments? We think about nurturing the next generation of investors, right? So today we know that as a mass trend, uh, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z have kind of an all-time low of mistrust around financial institutions, and they're not participating in the markets the way that their parents did, their grandparents did. The old Wall Street rule of thumb is just not true. You yeah. have many well, I mean, um, anecdotes and data really points. Them, right? like they, they, they... Yeah, I mean, it's no surprise, right? Many of them grew up in an era where all they knew were financial scandal and crises, right? They've, they've not even seen a couple of cycles of healthy market cycles naturally just run its course. Well, it's so, also a fundamental uh, mistrust of, you know, these were the institutions we were told that they were told to trust growing up. And then at the first instance, well, look, you know, it was greed that almost built the entire world. So I can't sure. trust. Them. So they're not, they're not, there's no misgivings about thinking that they're getting something benevolent necessarily when, when transacting. Sure. Right. Sure. sure. We, just, we spoke to many millennials who, as a small anecdote, they say, I'd rather invest in Kickstarter than put my money in a financial institution because then I could, I trust that. I see where that money is going. And so, no, yes, laser certainly. Ranger. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> Not saying that that is, the, that is the true rule of thumb, but I'm just telling you what some of the marketplace is saying in terms of how they're thinking and feeling, Fair right? Enough. So we do care very much about financial literacy and what nurturing the next generation of investors look like, right? Someone should play a much more active role. At the same time that millennials say they mistrust financial institutions, they also crave information and knowledge, and they want to be able to know what to do and how to make decisions. So that might be a space that we're interested in. We're also interested in the future of retirement, right? You look at today, uh, one in three individuals in the U.S. workforce are considered a non-traditional employee whereby they don't have access to an employer-sponsored retirement plan. These are folks who are gig economy workers, side hustle is the main hustle, they're independent consultants and contractors, maybe they switch jobs frequently. And there's some stats that show in the next 15, 20 years, one in two U.S. workers is going to become a non-traditional employee in NTE. So if that is the case, then retirement vehicles of yesterday may not be sufficient to meet a growing population of tomorrow. So what might we want to do about that? Of course the potential for new product services, even regulatory changes, all have a piece to play there. So, you know, I'm giving you kind of very broad stroke meta themes that were interesting to us, because again, we're working on some of the more futuristic, ambitious, and ambiguous projects. Hopefully that gives you an example of the types of interesting problems that we were exploring. Well, I mean, given the fact you, you were looking at things several years out, I'm sure in a couple of years, I'll start to see the results of those publicly. So, so I will credit you with announcements that Vanguard makes in the future. One last point. I mean, the, thinking, the, the one thing that Vanguard definitely has going forward in the millennial sphere is you guys occupy the, um, let's call it the moral high ground. Nothing like being a not-for-profit <laughs> technically in order to get that moral high ground. At so. cost, Jason, at cost structure. At cost. I mean, well, mm-hmm. hey, it's, it's yes, at cost. We call it what you will. So that's that was the job there. So tell me about the transition into your current role. What 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 really drove that? 
Yeah, I mean, primarily two different things. Um, one, I am from New York. I have family and friends and network here. And so there was a personal reason that was tugging me to be closer to here. Family mm -hmm. is aging, right? I'm called on, I'm needed more and more. And I just wanted to be closer to home. So that's kind of a big reason and a driver for a career change. The second thing is, look, I super love Vanguard. I'm rooting for it. I think they are absolutely the good guys of doing good and doing well. And I really, really enjoyed my role. I mean, pinch yourself, right? To be the head of innovation at a place like Vanguard and the first head of innovation, getting to do all this interesting, potentially very impactful work. But I also thought that, hey, if I want to do more and more of this work, I might also be interested to step outside of financial services and maybe work on developing ventures or investing in ventures outside of fintech. And so um, part of the move to do that was to go into a more kind of independent setting whereby I could invest and build things that interested me across the spectrum. So as an investor, previously, as I was describing, the categories that I cover that I'm interested in, in addition to fintech, is also consumer. So direct-to-consumer businesses, as well as enterprise SaaS, right? So a lot of the engines that drive uh, businesses today. So wanting to just get outside of the, you know, always being known as the fintech girl and making the transition to a more kind of wide playing field, so to speak. You said it's a negative thing. <laughs> Which part? Sorry, girl. you cut it yeah. out a little bit. I said you, you say that like almost like it's a negative thing being the fintech girl. It's, uh, <laughs> it's no, no, not at all. But I don't always or only want to be the fintech yes. girl, right? Um, as you can imagine, how many blockchain decks come to my desk? Oh um, God, <laughs> I really don't want to. <laughs> Um, no comment. That's all I'll say there. So wanting to just switch it up and also for my own interest and learning, right? Ex expanding my, my borders there. I will uh, ask you offline about what the funniest blockchain proposal you've seen. I'm not going to get you out them on the air, but we'll, we'll chat about that after. So getting into the investment space and advisory space in those, you're involved with a couple of different kind of outlets for that. Can you speak to the bigger ones that you're dealing with? Sure. So um, I am a angel investor through 37 Angels, which is a female syndicate based out in New York, accredited investors who are women coming together to uh, identify early growth stage opportunities. So we really do pre-seed seed investments in a variety of startups. They don't have to be female uh, founders, but I would say we're very interested in leveling up the playing field there. So we do see a good majority of the deal flow come in from diverse founders, uh, women or, or people of color. And it really spans the gamut. So we don't have a particular focus. It is a generalist approach. And so we see a lot of direct-to-consumer. We see products. We see services. We see health tech. We see fintech. We see ed tech really just cuts across the gamut. And I'm also a venture partner at VU Venture Partners. VU stands for Venture University, which is both a fund as well as a trade school headquartered in San Francisco with uh, an office in New York. I'm a part of the New York office. There, the five verticals that we cover are consumer, enterprise, fintech, healthcare, and frontier. I cover actually consumer and um, enterprise. Let's yeah. define frontier here because I, I love that term. Yeah. Stuff Generally, tends to skew a little bit sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, you know, you think about ag tech, right? So agriculture, you think about space exploration, mm -hmm. you think about alternative energy, anything that is pretty far reaching out. I would liken it to the Horizon 3 space driven by technology or new science. Excellent. 
So tell me a little bit more about 37 Angels. So it's a, a syndicate of women investors. Is this, uh, does everybody have the pedigree that you do in terms of the background or are you taking people from just different levels of, uh, of success or exposure to this, um, to the industries in general? Yeah, great question. It's more of the latter. Certainly there are a number of angels within the network who come from a venture, a startup or innovation background like myself, but I would say the majority of them are businesswomen who come from all different walks of industries, some from banking, some from consulting, some from marketing, some working at startups themselves. And so I would think, I would say it just really spans the gamut. I think the thing that we have in common are first and foremost, we're all accredited investors, right? So uh, it is a little bit more of an established experience pool of investors. And then secondarily, we all have a really strong affinity towards increasing representation of female and diverse founders and funders, right? 37 Angels, the founder, Angela Lee, who's fantastic, by the way, she is the a force to be reckoned with. The naming convention behind 37 was in the peak year where there was the highest percentage of female investors represented in the industry was 13%. And so to get to 50%, 50 minus 13, 37, <laughs> right? And hence the name. Of course, the stats have shifted since then, but unfortunately not much better beyond that. Female investors and female founders by percentage representation is still grossly, grossly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the statistics I've seen were far off, were from, Two yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, know. still like a rounding error, which is just yeah. shocking. And it's um, and for diverse founders, it's even worse. And for yeah. women of color, it's probably the, the absolute lowest. So yeah. there's a lot of work to be done. And there's definitely inherent bias. I mean, the reality is there's been studies done on basically pitches done where the only thing they did was change the name of the person doing the pitch. Essentially, the men get funded more frequently than women do. So it's just very, And the irony is female-founded businesses actually do better in terms of growth, right, traction, as well as returns. And so it's a huge opportunity, you know, outside of doing what's right and making sure that you're a part of the movement. I would say just make smart dollars and cents, right, in terms of the economic buying power that women represent and femtech as a category huge yeah i think that there's i mean there's a selection bias to that step i think it's a positive one right because i mean if you're one of these four or five percent that gets funded it's because your idea is just that bloody good that they can't ignore you and i think that literally only the cherry on the top gets picked whereas some unfortunate foolish male-led companies that maybe you know rent out office space around the world with free beer get funded to degrees that shouldn't be right <laughs> and yeah. so i mean i think yeah over time i think you'll we'll probably see more of a levelization of a performance but for right now yeah i mean there's a probably a fantastically over over there's a there's a huge number of fantastic female-led ideas that are not getting funded unfortunately that if people like yourselves or anyone looking to fund women are probably going to get a disproportionate amount of return because those ideas are not being harvested Yeah, but it's also our job to change the other side of the table, right? And so helping male investors, helping male founders and team members recognize what good looks like. And it comes in many different forms outside of traditionally what they expect. And so certainly there's work to be done to help nurture female founders and funders so that they can have greater access, greater resources, greater connections, greater confidence, but there's also a lot of onus on the other side of the table, which is to say, I mean, if you want to participate in the upside, you have to change your own behavior, beliefs, and structures to accommodate it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, you put five of the same people in a room and you're not going to get much of a representation of the real world. Uh, you need to need to diversify that set. It's been a common Yeah, theme. we want to get to the point where the woman founder doesn't have to be 10 times better just to get noticed. 100%. Right? Like 100%. You don't want just the, the uppermost. They have disproportionate returns because it's just that much better. You don't want that. You want them to have the same opportunity set. Excellent. So before we wrap up, there's three questions I ask everybody and no preparation for these. So uh, here they come. First off, if you had one wish for something you could change in the industry or what it is you do, what would it be? Gosh, outside of what we just talked about? Outside of, <laughs> outside of women getting the 50%? No, that could be the answer. I mean, if, if that's, if that's um, your one wish. I, one well, let me say this. I have two wishes, if it's okay. <laughs> my one <laughs> my wish. My first wish is more wishes. Way. That's doable. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yes, my one wish is for VC funds incubators, accelerators, startups, corporate innovation platforms, basically every player within the ecosystem to dedicate a commitment towards increasing representation for female and diverse founders and um, investors. And so making that an explicit part of their mandate and demonstrating with accountability how they're leveling up there. That's kind of one wish, because I think just having more representation at the table is going to be an important step to opening up the right dialogue to identifying the true kind of latent biases and issues that we need to address together. So that's one. And the second thing is I want to see more deliberate funding uh, going towards more social good startups. So green and clean tech in particular. The planet that we all inhabit, <laughs> inhabit is in, in real dire trouble, whether it's air, whether it's water, whether it's the oceans, right? Whether it's pollution, upcycling, there's just so many opportunities. And again, women and diverse founders by stats tend to be more of the driving force behind these types of startups as well. And so um, just overall, you know, if there's particular categories that I can make a plea for, it would be green and clean tech for more founders and investors to flock to. Yeah, we can definitely use some carbon extraction technology right about now. Thank you. So second question is, what's been the biggest challenge in your career getting to where you are? And I mean, you can speak to the experience either at Vanguard or as a founder or as a funder. You know, what's been the biggest obstacle you've faced in general? I would say there's no playbook for working in innovation or venture. <laughs> Certainly now, I think there's more and more of a little bit more of common path that you oftentimes see people take. For example, you know, venture capitalists now more and more have more of a consulting or they were a startup founder or mm -hmm. they worked in banking, right? Kind of as a background, but as a career path, it's not a tried and true like consulting, like banking, like accounting, like marketing, like a lot of other paths that people go to school for. And so, you know, one of the questions that I get asked all the time when I do panels and sit on forums like this is how do you, can you give me a playbook? right? Can you build me a checklist of what I need to do to get into a role like this? And there isn't quite one, but what does exist is kind of a set of underlying behaviors, mindsets, experiences, um, trials that you'll need to have as an individual that could give you the best chance of success. And so I'd much rather talk someone through some of those experiences and underlying skills and competencies versus a kind of a cookie cutter checklist of how to get to a particular role. So last question is, what excites you the most about what it is you're doing keeps you getting up in the morning to keep fighting the good fight and going, and going, going strong? Yeah, um, <laughs> I am an optimist just inherently. And despite 
the abysmal numbers we talked about, <laughs> despite kind of what's happening in the world around us. I see every day such talented, capable, uh, passionate founders trying to solve real human problems. And that gives me so much hope. And many of them are young, but also many of them are older and more established in their careers. So I still think that kind of startup as a career, solving problems through a, launching a business, a product as a career is still very much alive and well. And so, you know, just as many crazy blockchain pitch decks that I see, <laughs> I'm super encouraged by some amazing founders and who have find truly worthwhile and large and commercialable <laughs> commercialization able to be monetized, <laughs> um, human problems with corresponding early stages of some awesome solutions that I see. So that always gives me great hope. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. And we're going to definitely talk about funny blockchain ideas after this is done. But really appreciate this. And I think everybody will enjoy hearing it. Thank you. This is my pleasure. Good luck. It's been fun. Thanks. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Alicia Davis. We did cover a lot of ground and go to talk about a lot of topics. But frankly, she brings a unique perspective that few have. So if you enjoyed that, as always, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.